if you actually have a real problem, like an injury, about half of those are silent until you actually develop symptoms a decade later or something mm. where tear accumulates. Like in CTE, NFL guys don't have, don't have any uh, symptoms for a decade, you know, a lot of the time. Uh, there's, some, there's some evidence that a lot of eating disorders might be injury-driven, for instance, a decade later, you're getting anxiety, sleep issues, eating disorders. Do you really know if you have a healthy brain? Most of us semi-functional humans would like to think so, but can you really tell? That's the question. We know if we have a healthy body, that's easy to figure out. We also know if we have healthy habits, that's pretty easy to figure out. So why don't we know if we have healthy brains? Our brains are literally the engines that move everything in our bodies, in our lives. One reason is because in the past, society kind of associated unhealthy brains with mental disorders. And if we don't have a mental disorder, then our brain must be healthy, right? Typically not. They say about 80% of people walking around actually have brain damage. And we could have got knocked in the head when we were kids. And that physical trauma can be actually affecting our lives 10, 20 years later. We can have emotional trauma. We can have chemical trauma that affects the way that our brain is working. So brain health today, you guys, is on the cusp of becoming a really big movement. I would say in the next decade or so, It'll be common for people to get brain scans on a regular basis, similar to how you get a checkup at the doctor. Rule of thumb, get a checkup with the doctor once a year. We need to get brain scans on a regular basis, at least once a year. So Dr. Andrew Hill is one of the top neuroscientists in the world today and one of the leading experts in neurofeedback. He's on this high-performance tip. He's leading this movement to help people understand they really need healthy brains. And another really important benefit of health, having a healthy brain is having productive brains. And if we have productive brains, then we can create more, we can live better lives, and we can grow better businesses. We can go after our dreams. We can accomplish our dreams faster. One of the things we do at our company and with our masterminds is we have a brain scanner, a $14,000 high-end, FDA-approved, top-of-the-line brain scanner. And for our customers and clients and our mastermind members, we give them brain scans. We want these people, these entrepreneurs to know their brain health and figure out what they can do to optimize it so they can grow better businesses, help more customers, help more clients, create better products for the world, and be more effective human beings. So here you guys, Andrew and I talk about having a healthy brain. When you talk about brain health, well, nobody's really talking about it, it brain health, right? Um, but when you think about it, I've, I've listened to some other scientists and neuroscientists about this. Like we don't take care. Most people don't know if they have a healthy brain, right? Yeah. They, they have no idea. You can say, oh, I have a healthy body. I could have a healthy diet, right? But it, do I really know if my brain's healthy? And you don't, unless you get it scanned properly, right? You don't know. And, it's and, hard to know. Yeah. yeah, it's a little hard to know for a bunch of reasons. One is if you actually have a real problem, like an injury, about half of those are silent until you actually develop symptoms, you know, a decade later or something mm. where it accumulates. Like in CTE, NFL guys don't have, don't have any uh, symptoms for a decade, you know, a lot of the time. Or in other cases of you know, injury-driven phenomena, uh, there's, some, there's some evidence that a lot of eating disorders might be injury-driven, for instance, a decade later, you're getting anxiety, sleep issues, eating disorders. But, yeah, but the other thing, the other problem, the general problem, is we can't tell how we're performing as the performance fluctuates. This is why we can't trust ourselves to drive a car and text or to drive intoxicated because the machinery we use to manage and monitor the equipment is also impaired. The right. whole system, you know, it, it's driven by survival to have us keep performing consistently-ish 
uh, against the face of waning and fluctuating resources. And so part of the job of the brain is to smooth out the perception of changing performance so we can keep performing adequately and keep driving forward and keep grading, if you will. It's why we can function in low light conditions in the morning and middle of the day. And the whole system's range and just the way our ear our cochlea can range to hear a mosquito and a jet engine mm-hmm. by changing sort of dynamic loudness tuning, you know, changing how stiff the cochlea is, for instance, in this case. The brain does that with all kinds of things like self-control and fine motor control and word processing and language and inhibition. So you can't tell if you're mildly impaired, typically, if you're a human, because you, you range the whole system that is judging that. So let's talk about, uh, you know this much more than I do. Mm-hmm. Tell us like the importance of brain scanning, how mm-hmm. often you think people... To, to understand if they have a healthy brain, how often they should yeah. get a brain scan, and then what they can expect from, from going in and getting one. Sure. I mean, when we say brain scans, a few things we should think about. One of them is, you know, what people might, cons- might already know about, MRIs, uh, CT scans, and a CT, for those folks that don't know, is basically a three-dimensional x-ray. We used to call it CAT scan. So MRI, CT, spec scans, which is a me- measure of metabolic activity. Uh, those are sort of very high-level feature-driven, you know, looking at your, your brain, like I'm taking an internal picture of your tissue or your activity of your brain. And those are useful for identifying big problems. You know, if you have a major brain injury or a major psychiatric problem, maybe an MRI or a SPECT or something will find it. But if you're dealing with some like mild stuff or things that aren't necessarily a problem, a disease state like you're seeing ADHD or anxiety or aging, you know, those are normal features of having brains. You know, they're not necessarily disease states. So those things don't show up on MRIs and spec scans and x-rays and those kinds of things. We'll look for right. you know, more gross, if you will, tissue things or big giant regulatory things. What I do is EEG-driven. That's called brain mapping or quantitative EEG, QEEG. And to get a brain map, it's a little different way of, of using imaging or using brain analysis, if you will. So a lot of the way we engage with data about ourselves even those of us that are progressive and you know biohacking and tuning the system and athletes and things like that, we still, when it comes to the sophisticated data, have this sort of, um, I don't want to say passive, but we have this receptive mode where we just kind of believe what people say once it's, once it's a certain amount of sophistication. And I think when, it, when we go to blind things, we can't see like our brains. Mm-hmm. We're really willing to say, oh, okay, this is what's true. Okay. To a psychologist or a neurologist or somebody else. And I think we have to move away from that perspective a little bit when talking about your brain and move more into like a fitness perspective and say, oh, what are your resources and where do you want them to be? It's a different perspective than what's normal and what's wrong, you know, and okay. why aren't you normal and this, you have to get, you know, this is what you have to do. So it's, it's from my perspective, and this is how I use the data, I use it as a scientist to help you demystify and understand your own brain. But I don't tell you what the data means, per se. I teach you how to read it. And I tell you what it might mean, what it often means with certain patterns. Because what we're doing with this kind of imaging data, this, this brain mapping, is we're looking at population-level analyses, really broad 10,000-foot views on lots of things in your brain that should be, you know, you can consider them traits, not states. Things that change very, very slowly. Your height, not if you're sitting up or standing down. Not, not what you're doing with those traits. Just gross resources. And so you see brain circuits that are involved with certain things, big, gross things, you know, if you will, um, that are, you know, understandable if you think about how your brain works, but don't map perfectly to like a psychological problem necessarily. So for example, there's switching systems in the brain. The back midline evaluates the environment and then looks for like mismatch. If you're driving a car and 
talk to somebody in the back seat for a few seconds. There's a sense of uh, watch the road and to the back midline, <laughs> throwing a flag in the place saying, ah, oh, you're not seeing being safe, you know, and you need yeah. that resource, you use it all the time. But if you're exposed to environments that are either acutely or chronically stressful or dangerous or unpredictable, that resource gets extra active and you see a back midline extra amount of brain waves on a brain map. You see, oh wow, your beta brain waves at the posterior cingulate or a couple standard deviations higher than average compared to people your age with your eyes closed. That's unusual, that's a true statement. But here's, you know, this is not medicine, it's more like science. So you, instead of saying, and then here's what's wrong with you, you would say, ah, and for many people with an active posterior cingulate, there tends to be this um, extra checked in nature to the environment, threat sensitive, maybe some rumination or being stuck in worry. And you, see, and you see if this is valid or not. So it's not, a, it's not a top down, here's what's true. It's a hypothesis generation. Oh, that sounds valid. It does, oh, that's interesting. Now, is it important? Does it get in the way or not? Oh, it does a little bit. Okay, well now we have a target, a fitness goal, a performance goal, if you will. And we've taken the sort of, here's what's wrong with you, symptom language and diagnostic language, which might be valid. There's use for that in many cases, but maybe not all. And we can look at resources in the brain that are very obvious things, like the switching systems. The other one of the fronts involved with perseveration. So if you have OCD or songs in your head or nail biting, that one becomes hot. Or if you have high levels of theta relative to beta in your brain in general, you can think of that as like air in the brake lines in your brain. So it's an ADHD phenomenon or some other executive function. Or if your alpha waves are running slow relative to people your age, you're having some speed of processing issues. And usually those come along with word finding issues in the afternoon. And so you can go through you know, 20 or 30 or 40 of these giant high level features. And again, the goal isn't to say, why aren't you average you know, compared to everyone else? The goal is to say, let's find the big statistical outliers, the sore thumbs, and use those to construct a set of hypotheses about which bottlenecks you might be experiencing, what some, what some goals might be for you. And we use that like a fitness scan you know, at a high end gym. You know, left side versus right side, some strength stuff. Oh, you can use some core strength. Oh, core? Ah, yeah, I want abs. Okay, well now abs are on your list. And it's just a neurofeedback, it's you want access to flow state or you want better inhibitory tone or better word finding or you wanna break up your PTSD or OCD or eliminate your seizures or drop your migraine. So it's about giving people tools though and it's not saying here's what's wrong, here's what you have to do. It's about saying here's some tools intact, let me demystify your brain, teach how to read your own brain maps. And so for instance, the QEEG, the brain mapping, I don't charge a, a repeat fee for it, it's a one-time cost. Mm -hmm. And you can come back and map your brain every few months. And so the question you asked about how often at this, at this level, this QEEG, the brain mapping level, because I'm looking at you compared to average people your age, it's very 10,000 foot view traits, and it doesn't change year after year. It's the same set of maps for you, unless you're doing something pretty significant to your brain. So if you get a concussion or, you know, big shifts in stress and sleep that, you know, really erode your lifestyle or performance or, uh, you know, something else happens major, you might see a change, maybe some, some medications make big changes. But otherwise, you know, most things don't. And we use the mapping process with um, the biofeedback to sort of guide and demonstrate the changes we're making. So I typically map your brain. Um, most people for neurofeedback will do something like 40 to 50 sessions, which okay. is three to four months. You're three, you're three times a week, roughly. And you can do it at home. You can do it on your own. You can do it in the office. Um, you can pause and play it. You know, you have to do it all at once. But it's something like that, you know, 40, 50 sessions is a usually good first chunk regardless of you know, almost what style of neurofeedback you're doing. And in our experience at Peak Brain, around that time course, you know, that sort of three to four month chunk of training, we typically get about two standard deviations of change in people's data. And two standard deviations of change in the brain maps, meaning you're getting significant physiological shift and things that would not shift otherwise 
And we're also getting a couple of standard deviations change in the attention test and dramatic shifts in sleep and, you know, flexibility, resilience and creativity, and other subjective things that are a little harder to quantify on testing. But all the things we test, things we quantify objectively, all change together, which is a good sign that this is something real, right? So it's reliable, for instance, to come in with severe ADHD, three to four standard deviations out of range in executive function control or severe anxiety or major sleep issues, and in three to four months have no symptoms and be performing above average on executive function tests Wow. and have be a permanent change at that point. Wow. That's Classic. amazing. That's the typical case, not the occasional case. In the easy things, the low-hanging fruit, sleep, stress, and attention, the things all brains do, that's the easy stuff. Things your brain is doing today, attending, switching gears, falling asleep, staying asleep, being alert. All the things you already do, those are the easy things. Because once you build enough of the resource, your brain is now regulating with new resources and it's stable. The things that are harder to do are things that are fighting against exi existing disease processes mm -hmm. or that have a lot more tissue, if you will, brain-based work versus mind-based work. So, uh, so if you have Parkinson's or major brain injuries or autism or, you know, you can make change. You absolutely can. And it's amazing what you can see sometimes, but it's slower and it takes, you know, like six sure. months for permanence really instead of three or four. But it's an amazing process to say, you know what, I'm not happy with my brain. And instead of being able to blind to your brain and not having a sense of agency about your stress response circuits or your impulsivity or vigilance or maintenance of sleep or onset of sleep or switching your attention when you're stressed on things or suppressing seizures or migraines, or whatever it is. You know, you can think about this in terms of what's wrong. You can also think about it in terms of what I want to do. Okay, that's a wrap, you guys, with Dr. Andrew Hill. question I'm going to leave you guys with is, do you really know if you have a healthy brain? And if not, what can you do to ensure that you do have a healthy brain? If you like what you're hearing and want to make sure you don't miss any of these tips, please subscribe, leave us a review, and share with your friends. We'll see you on the next episode.